The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Ensemble Advice is not a licensed financial services provider and does not provide financial services. Before making investment decisions, you should obtain financial advice from a qualified financial advisor. I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. Tonight, I have with me in the studio, Aaron Samuels. Aaron is someone that you might have seen on Instagram. He is someone that is very comfortable behind the camera and has a way of explaining things in a really nice way. Aaron, it's a privilege to have you with me here tonight. Thanks, Louis. Um, yeah, I am, I've, I've learned to become comfortable in front of the camera. It wasn't always the case. Um, but yeah, sometimes you need to push yourself in a bit of a direction and then yeah, you don't look back after that. So yeah, I'm in front of the camera once again. And what a profession to actually push yourself a little bit. Hey, like this is really something where I feel like there's a push and a pull from different directions just to just to actually stay alive, especially those those beginning years. Give us a little bit of a of an introduction of who Aaron is and you know how he got into financial services world. Yeah, so if I if I start in the in the early days, I grew up in a small town. Um, I actually read a headline this afternoon. Funny enough, that it's actually the town with the cleanest air in Africa, or in the top ten or something, and that is Otsuwa of all places. Um, so that that's where I grew up and did um, most of my schooling there. Finished up high school in Stellenbosch. My family relocated, and then I started my studies. So. I had a keen interest um, in law at the time, so I studied a, a BCom law, and and through that I was exposed to financial planning really uh, for the first time. I think at that stage one's perception is that um, financial planning refers to some insurance policies and maybe an investment or some pension thing on the side, and once you start being exposed to it, um, academically at least, um, yeah, that's that's where the bug bit me. So yeah, when after I finished my my undergrad, I entered the industry as intern, interning as a financial planner within the practice. So yeah, what did that exposure look like? 
you know, when you say you've been exposed to it, like how does someone studying law <laughs> end up in financial <laughs> services? That's, a, that's, I mean, I can see the connections, but I'd love to yeah. hear how that actually happened. Yeah, so I was actually telling a colleague the story the other day when, when I was a student, obviously having no exposure to the industry and only um, knowing what I've read. Um, on paper, I, I told myself I probably want to be a compliance officer. Um, and <laughs> that would have probably ended in tears for everyone involved um, because I I told myself that it would be the perfect cross-section between law and financial services and on paper that just seems like the right fit, but it's possibly the most wrong fit for me that, <laughs> that you'll be able to find. But it just shows you don't, when you're a student, when in high school, you don't actually know until, until you get into it. Um, so I actually added... Um, investments and financial planning as elective modules during my, my undergrad studies. And that's where I started to, yeah, that's it. I was exposed to it and that caught my interest. Um, the law, yeah, I still, still love the law and the way that it taught me to think and to, to look at things. But yeah, I, I definitely started to gravitate towards financial side of things. That's so interesting because when I think of someone studying law, they end up typically with insurance companies as legal advisors. And they would explain to you the intricacies of, you know, the estate plan and what impact this has. But yet you found yourself in a practice. How much did you rely on your your training, um, specifically within the South African law context, during your early years? During that first year, year two, when I was really very much a newbie, um, that's an even part of some of the introductory work I did. So maybe just a bit of context around that. Uh, I was actually given amazing opportunities through the CISA Academy. Um, and they have a program which they run to enter more younger um, and advisors of color into the market. And they link up with some of the top practices all over the country now. I was actually part of the, the first group um, which they ran in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. And even through the, the introductory work I, I did with them at, at the academy, you realize how much legislation actually underpins what we do. Everything regarding financial services on the product level, at least, finds its foundation in, in legislation. An RA is an RA because legislation says that's what an RA is. And your unit trust collective investment scheme is that because the act says it's that. So everything is really underpinned by, by the law view. You should break it down like that. So I think it did keep, help me to understand or grasp things maybe a bit quicker. And it also made me a lot more comfortable with the amount of reading one typically has to do. So, yeah, that's, that's something I can put a lot of people off. So when people tell me they want to study law, first thing I ask them is, do you like reading? And if they don't, and I'm like, think, think again, think twice. Do you like reading acts? It's funny yeah. you say that because <laughs> I literally got a voice note maybe two hours ago from an industry colleague that started mm. studying the deceased um, estate administration diploma. And he said, I'm supposed to read 110 pages this week in acts. What? <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm, and I mean, that's, that's just the legislation. And then they're throwing some case law with that as well. Um, you're dealing with appeal cases and concord cases goes up to 40 to 60 pages. Um, and you have a few of those to read as well. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a bit. It's demanding. Do people still knock on your door and say, hey, please interpret this act or the change in legislation <laughs> or the change in the Income Tax Act? Or have you have you moved away from from that? In the early years, 
as if I'm that old, but in the early years, maybe still, or, or more fresh out, out of my studies. Um, but yeah, I think I, I, I put people off of that. Um, so that, yeah, they don't, they don't bother me for legal opinion anymore because I'm not really as clued up as I need to be to be able to give up a valuable opinion. So yeah, now people, people come to me for different kind of advice these days. I would say you've rebranded. I have, I have unintentionally, but successfully um, rebranded. Before we get into that rebrand, tell me a bit more about the CISA Academy. It's something that pops up every now and again. We get an email from the CISA Academy saying, hey, would you want to bring in graduates in your business? A lot of practices are skeptical, but mm -hmm. what is the experience of someone actually going through that process? What did they help you in terms of the skill set? And also, what was that matching with a practice experience for you? Sure. So... Yeah, I mean, they do some some really good work, and um, Alicia David sets up the, the academy at the moment. Not always that they they really do do life changing work. Um, I I remember as a graduate, I just finished up my studies. I was working part time in retail, and it's that time of the year where you're like you need to find a job now. And um, me being me, I kept very close track of all the job applications I sent in. I had a spreadsheet. Who did I apply to? What date did I apply? When am I going to follow up? And I probably applied to in excess of 50 jobs. Um, and yeah, you, you, you tell yourself you, you're fairly bright. You have a, a decent qualification, become law. It's not that, that common. You think it would be l less hard. Um, it's actually not. So yeah, the CISA Academy was one of the only, yeah, institutions I can say that. That, that gave me a go. And yeah, so they run a number of programs and the one that I was involved in obviously is the, the IFA internship program. And like you said, they they partner with some of the um the bigger management um firms, Alan Gray ninety one, um MNG and Coral if I'm if I'm not mistaken, or, or at the time it was those four. And they really do try to do a lot of work in one work readiness because I mean you're you're green you're new yesterday you were student tomorrow you're you're an intern and then they also do a lot of effort in the, the whole matching up process but I think they do have a challenge with finding practices who are able to take on able and willing to take on interns and to do so on a continuous basis and the practice I was based that took over the course of three years I think that took three interns of, of which I was the first but in, in having a lot of conversations with um, Russell who was involved in the academy at the time as well um, they're always looking for more but there's been immense growth they started off um, only in Cape Town and Johannesburg and I think we went 15 in total and from what I see now they are all over the country um, PE Durban Bloom as well if I'm not mistaken so there has really been a much better take up but from a practice side, it's it's difficult because you're still running a business and uh, the sponsors, the asset managers are on board and the academy help to, to carry some of the, the financial obligations because, I mean, they, they would want to pay you a, a living, livable wage or salary. Um, but the way practices are set up is that if, if you're paying someone a salary, what value are they adding and does that value translate into monetary terms? Um, 
yeah, you can only do so much charity, so to speak. But if you're paying an intern X amount, um, that intern's not necessarily going out, seeing clients, finding new clients, and that also isn't the expectation. So it's tricky from both sides. Sure, Aaron. I mean, it sounds like the profession is not yet set up for the structure. It's maybe a little bit ahead of its time that they help you get work ready. But then that that part of applying to 50 jobs with someone that, you know, now has a degree and has these skills, like what was going through your mind? Like at that point, did you consider other career options? Do you revisit, is this what I want to do? Yeah, I mean, you wonder. I mean, you, you have to keep your, your, your options open. Um, at, at that stage, because it was the the first round of it being that, I know the funding that, that the academy was able to subsidize was, you know, the internship was actually only eight months long. That was what they were able to do at the time. From what I understand, it's 12 months now. Um, but, I mean, I was in a fortunate position where um, the practice that I did, the eight-month internship, I actually wanted to keep me on. Um, and they, they keep me on for additional year and then for, for another bit. But I mean, that, that, that could have been different. And for all their good intentions at that stage, they were able to put you into the job market, which is their mandate. And that's, that's what the academy is trying to do is get your work ready and get you a job. But I know of, come to think about it, out of the Cape Town group that I started with as, as interns, I'm the only one still in the industry. Um, so, yeah, that, that in itself tells a bit of a story as well. So, like you said, it's, it's really about how it's packaged and is the industry um, is the industry ready for, yeah, maybe, maybe the structures should change. I don't know. Why do you think it is that you are the one that's still yeah, and the other ones dropped out? Because if I look at my class of people that did CFP, very similar stats, right? 90 plus percent of them. Uh, chose to left to leave and then yeah, no longer yeah. yeah. So yeah. what what do you think? What does it take to become a financial planner and sit it out? Like what are those <laughs> those values without being boastful? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you're putting me on the spot now. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the one thing you've heard from all your all your cases when you when you ask them about the the history and the context now they've got into the industry. Um, all of them say they stumbled in or, or found their way into the industry. And and it was the same for me. And I think that some of us stumble and find our way into the industry. And once we get in, like, oh, this isn't bad. I actually like this. For 70 or 80%, they get in and they have a look around and they're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to hang around much longer. This. So like I said earlier, it's only one to actually in the thing that you know. Uh, but funny enough, you wouldn't necessarily find that same trend in law or in accounting or in HR or in medical fields. People who study that direction, generally that's what they know that they want to do and they most of the time they end up sticking it through. But I do think the fact that they, I almost want to say that financial planning as a occupation isn't as well marketed. Um, if I can put it that way, you you really have to get in it before you get a glimpse. Whereas with other lines of of work and industries, you you get a much better sense and idea uh, while looking from the outside. Yeah, I, I think what would want more likely or a student or someone in high school is much more likely to go up to a doctor or attorney and ask questions 
What's it like being an attorney? What's it like being a doctor? What do I need to look out for? I don't know how many financial planners experience that having students who high school learners coming up there or something in that. I don't know. <laughs> what would we need to change for that to happen? Because if you think about a chartered accountant, it's I only yeah. need to get through my articles and then there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Yet with financial planning, it feels like the light might be there, but there's no guarantee. You still need to. Where, where is the light? You know, <laughs> where is the light? Right? Yeah, right. Is, yeah. is that a function of the structure of remuneration? Yeah, I think the that historic burden that we are that we are fighting so hard to to correct or to redirect. Um, yeah, I just think at, at again, and and this is from from younger people looking to get into um, financial planning as a career and from an inclined perspective, that whole perception, like you said, that whole perception around the industry, it's not, for many people, it's not something that's aspirational. Um, you don't find many kids being wonder when I'm big, <laughs> I want to do this, um, because of the perception, and, and not only perception, but the reality. Many people's parents, many people's grandparents had, Bad, terrible experiences um, that have really put put the damper on thing. And I mean, people have bad experiences with attorneys and doctors and accountants as well. But yeah, it just seems like the brand around those occupations in the industry. Maybe we should get um, better. I, I think financial planning needs better PR. Uh, Absolutely. Put it that Absolutely. Way. And I mean, let's talk about that because you have, I think, very successfully rebranded yourself and especially the work you do with the wealth coach as mm. someone that's approachable that distills context and you know heavy information into something that's actually that's enjoyable and as a financial planner mm. I, I mean i watch your videos on instagram and these things are <laughs> the, the, number one they're well made and and they're engaging and they're exciting what how did that start right tell me about that and and is it successful right is it this a long strategy to attain clients or what's your strategy behind this? Should financial planners listening to this spend more time on social media? She was, I'm going to drop her some feathers. Um, so, yeah, just to answer the first part of the question, how I got into the, the wealth coach, it was really born out of partly frustration and partly out of, um, yeah, being, being at a place and a line of work that wasn't totally aligned with my passions and my values. So I found I found an outlet for it, an outlet where I can help and educate people with no strings attached. Um, and that's, that's really what it was. So um, when you're working as a financial advisor or planner and your remuneration structures of such a nature where you're essentially in a position when you have to sell and that's not necessarily aligning with who you are, yeah, you, you you find a different outlet. So I I, I think I found a, a productive outlet which I which I actually enjoy. So yeah, it actually started as just a branding exercise as a differentiator. Um as an advisor, I thought there's thousands and thousands of other people who call themselves financial advisors. Why should what makes me different? So it was purely it was basically a logo and a name and a slightly different way of doing things. And then I realized that the student actually has a bit of legs. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's how I leaned more into it and actually bought out the, the offering and actually formalized it a bit. And, um, yeah, I really took a deep dive first into marketing, 
into coaching, specifically into social media marketing, and just threw all of all of that together. So yeah, I went through three or four months of deep diving into podcasting, YouTube, TikTok, just learning and learning, deep diving to coaching, human side of money, all of that, and and what came out was was the wealth coach. That is fascinating that you you kind of just brought in information and distilling and distilling and distilling and then said, okay, what am I going to tackle? How did you filter out those those things? Because, you know, there's thousands of tactics, very similar to a client coming to you and saying, hey, there's 50 different things I want to consider. No, how how no. did you figure out what's going to be the most impactful for you and for the wealth coach? Yeah, part of it is, is trial and error. If you go back into your LinkedIn messages, when you scroll up a bit, you'll see about a year and a half ago, I sent you a message asking about podcasts and telling you that I'm going to start my own podcast. Um, that that still hasn't happened. It probably won't happen for a while, but you, and that's exactly what I did. I spoke to people. Yeah, I was trying and error at one stage. I thought that was the way to go. But I took the approach that I take with a lot of things, and that's keeping the end goal in mind and reverse engineering, and then learning from the mistakes of other people. So, looking at what I'm looking to achieve and what's going to be the most effective way to get me there. Um, what's really going to going to achieve my actual purpose? Um, what's the best medium to use? And yeah, that's basically in my case, primarily LinkedIn and, and Instagram. TikTok comes in a close third. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of trial and error. And... Yeah, I think yeah, you spoke to, to Tim re- recently and I and I quite enjoyed that. Um there's there's a big push and I mean it's my colleagues as well. I'm I'm constantly going on with them about they need to increase their brand presence and social media presence. But one needs to get to a place where where you have where you realize that this is something that I want to do and need to do and then deciding on what you, what medium you're comfortable with. Um, some people will be in a nervous sweat sitting over here talking to you on camera. Others hate writing. So it's about playing to your strengths. Um, I'm a firm believer that if, if you're not a camera person, don't try to make yourself a camera person. If you're not great at writing, don't try to start writing blogs or something. Um, so it's, yeah, play play to your strengths and then keep your end goal in mind and then just reverse engineer it really. And the people engaging with you and listening to this, is that clients that you work with in your nine to five? Like, are those the same people following you or are you using this to generate new potential clients? Like what's, what does the engagement look like? Yeah. So my, my, I'm with the, the wealth coach really stands um, totally separate from my nine to five. So I, I speak again at, it comes from my my own need to speak to a certain audience. The audience I want to speak to isn't necessarily my nine to five's um, target audience. So when the wealth coach speaks, the wealth coach is speaking to the twenty five year old who's in their first job, or the twenty seven year old who's in the third year of work, um, thirty two year old who just got married, um, thirty five year olds having their first child. Um, that that's really with the with the wealth coach is speaking to, and that's that's who I want to be speaking to. That's that's um who I enjoy speaking to. Um, I mean, I even I enjoy speaking to students as well, and I, I often get this top thing to speak to them. 
uh, which is something I, I quite enjoy. So yeah, that's really, again, an outlet for my this drive and need I have to speak to, to younger people. I think you mentioned a little bit earlier that's not necessarily the ideal target market as a financial planner and that mm. it kind of doesn't sit complete with your values. Mm. Can we talk about how do we make it an ideal target for someone starting out that could say, hey, I don't want to be dealing with a 60-year-old that's retiring and having to make these decisions. I want to deal with people my age that are struggling with things that I'm struggling with and help them on that journey. Like, yeah, yeah. Can, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think there, yeah, somehow there must be a way to to service them or, or you're doing this. Um, yeah, but at, at, at that stage, you and your, your, you and your clients are almost equally struggling um, sometimes. <laughs> I know my my um, manager, when I just started out, he, he told me that you you can't, and I mean, I was 24, 23 or something, he told me you can't really um, be, be speaking to your friends or peers because they're just as broke as you, so that's, that's going to work out. Um, so, yeah, it, and I mean, that, that's what it comes down to. It comes down to feasibility and profitability. How how much can you make, I guess it boils down to the question, can you make a living, financial plan or make a living out of servicing 25 to 35 year olds while having their best interest at art? And I think that's a, a question we can pose to the to the panel. <laughs> so I feel like that should be a panel <laughs> discussion because I, I, I really don't know. I want to say probably not. I really don't know. That's why a lot of financial plans, especially the ones that are a bit more established, um, tend to look at, at, at those who have more considerable assets um, who have better means because, I mean, it, just just more feasible. So monetization, generating an income when you're, yeah, with the, with the injuries that I earn is not, not rich yet, especially if you're starting from scratch. I mean, if you have... 150 uh, working from a base of X amount of 150, 200 pounds, or whatever the case is, then it then it could be a lot more feasible. But I mean, if you're if you're coming from scratch, I I don't know. Do you think that could be done? <laughs> so it's, it sounds like this challenge is twofold. The one is the income per client, and then secondly mm. is how do you accumulate clients quickly enough? Mm. What I'm wondering mm. is these people are probably spending seven, eight, nine grand a month on a car, mm. right? If you if you think about a high income earner not mm. like don't necessarily have accumulated wealth yet, surely they would be comfortable parting with their money if they can see there's value for coaching experience or a monthly retainer. When we listen to the Michael Kitzers and his guests, people are doing like group coaching on this level mm. and they're paying few hundred dollars to help them solve these issues mm. yet i haven't really seen someone consistently do this successful in in south africa like yeah. do we give up or are you committed to finding a way to service <laughs> service this segment i'm servicing the segment i don't know if i ever be fully be able to make a living off it um that's that that's uh, the other question so i, I think we, we can distinguish between um financial advice and product Offering and coaching and more education, educational offering on, on the other hand. Um, and you can throw speaking um, workshops into, into that category as well. I do think it, 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 it can be done. 
young people are willing to pay once they see this value. Um, most, a lot of young people who do struggle, they realize that they're struggling, and it's about positioning yourself um, as someone who's able to help them solve a problem and help them solve their problem. And I think that's that's the trick with with marketing. Um, we the client sees, okay, Aaron does this, but can he do it for me? He solves this type of problem, but can he solve my problem within that? Um, people are willing to pay. It's just about reaching them. And yeah, is there is there enough scale? It's about reaching them, reaching them quick enough. So yeah, I'm I'm ending up with more questions and answers here to be honest. Yeah, and that's okay, Aaron. I think this is worth. Uh, worth having the conversation. I, I want to ask you when when people reach out to you with a specific problem, like do they often diagnose the real problem, or is that just the like little tip of the iceberg? And and how do you go about figuring out what what do they actually need help with? Yeah, no, they look most of the time people will speak of the symptoms, and and when I market and make little videos or little posts or whatever, I'm I'm speaking to symptoms as well. Um, but it's only once you actually start start working with someone, and I'm sure you'll, you'll be able to relate in that, that whole process of helping them uncover and, and getting the client to realize that this is actually just a symptom of, of something bigger. So, look, sometimes you need to stop the bleeding, and you do need to you do need, do need to pay attention to the to the Triage. symptoms. <laughs> yeah, you 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 actually have to. Um, and it's only once you've got the bleeding under control, that's when you can actually sit down and have a calm conversation and say, let's, let's actually take a deeper dive into this. Um, but yeah, when people reach out, they're reaching out with symptoms. Um, people's money disappearing through the middle of the month, people struggling with, with debt, um, people knowing that they should be investing and it's probably the right thing to do, but, but they have no clue how to go about it. Um, so yeah, that's where the educational bulb comes in, and and in other instances, more of, more of coaching up. We it's really a more of a behavior and a mindset issue that that's holding people back. Um, and I think those are probably my favorite people to work with is, is the people who who actually have enough money. They just don't know it. There's enough money to go around on paper. They they're totally fine. But you ask them what's your financial life like, and I'll tell you what's a mess. And it currently is. But once you're able to get through the mess and you'll see that, yeah, that's that, that's quite rewarding. Isn't that a function of the people that tend to worry about these things or the people that are probably, uh, you know, fairly okay? I, I often yeah. think about it. The people that we see is the people that have made some provision. We don't see the people that you know, didn't make provision or are mm. so far down the line that, you know, actually, hey, the things are bad. <laughs> you know, we need to yeah. stop the bleeding. Yeah, in, in a lot of instances, things are bad, but there's usually either enough time and or money to, to still remedy the situation. Um, but yeah, to, yeah, especially think about the whole, the whole money script concept, um, and the, and the money vigilance. So yeah, most of the people who do speak to you and I as, so have, have that money vigilance, but it's never only money vigilance. And what I say, and it's, it's an exercise I do with, with all the, coaching clients I work with one of the first things after they fill in their name they they do the manuscript um, um, questionnaire because that that's really one of the pillars of foundations that I use when when working in a in a coaching setup with someone 
because that that really that's like taking the X-ray or the or the CT scan because because then you know when what you're working with, and I'll often see the money vigilance and then fairly strong, very strong money worship. Aaron, for people that aren't familiar with this, can you explain a little bit the work of Brad Clant and you know yeah. what the money script is? Yeah, so I'll, I'll explain it in the in the way that I usually explain it when I'm speaking to people, um, and I explain it in the context of of love languages, um, because we're we're very most of us are familiar and very comfortable with with love languages and how they are underlying needs and beliefs um, surrounding our relation interpersonal relationships, but we at the end of the day we have a relationship with money as well. So if there are love languages for our relationships with each other, surely there should be a language um, with a relationship with money as well. And that's essentially what the, my, how I see my what money scripts comes down to. Uh, it's that deep-rooted underlying beliefs um, and biases we have around money. And it's brilliantly summarized into the four broad categories I'm going to have to help me here, but it's money status, money worship, money vigilance, and money avoidance. And we all have one that's a bit more dominant, but this, yeah, we basically have two um, that that shows itself. And it really speaks deeply to to how we act with money and that, that gap between what we know about money and what we actually end up doing. And what we actually end up doing is so largely influenced by our underlying manuscript that it, it, it can't be ignored, um, which is why it's one of the first things first things I do. And that money worship um, manuscript is really the one that has people running on that treadmill and chasing and chasing and chasing where yeah, you'd see someone who who's struggling with debt, earns enough, has a bunch of debt, and instead of what the logical thing would do is to reduce your debt. Instead, they they try gambling or they try online trading to make more money to service that debt instead of spending less. And for me as an outsider, um, objectively speaking, you'd say, but that doesn't even make sense. It makes perfect sense to that person. Um, I, I read something on LinkedIn a while ago um, where the person said that all money decisions make perfect sense. Um, and a big part of my job is understanding what makes it make sense for my client. Why does it make such perfect sense for you? When objectively on paper, it, it just doesn't. Aaron, I, th- I want to add there, I think it's Rick Kayla that always says, any seemingly illogical decision yes. makes perfect sense once you know yes. the emotion behind yes. it. For, for people yes. listening, you can Google K. MSR, which is the Clant Manuscript Inventory Questionnaire. Um, how do you use that, Aaron? Do you physically do you send them a PDF and say, "Hey, complete this"? Do you send them a data points link? Like, whoa! Like, how do you how do you do this in practice? Have you built your own quiz? Jeez, I I still need to get to that point of building my own. Um, but now I actually um, would would send clients the link, and okay. um, we would then they'd obviously complete it, and then in our in our following session. We'd actually have between the whole session just just working through that, um, and yeah, it's it's quite quite eye opening for for the client, and it obviously gives me um, a much better insight into on dealing with because usually that would be the first actual session um, after the introductory chat that with him, 
Um, so yeah, then it, it really gives me a much better idea of who's of who's sitting across from me. It might be interesting for you to know that Data Points has teamed up with the Clancers, and so you can actually have a custom branded, you know, inventory along with a, yes. a lot of other financial therapy tools. It's, it is quite pricey for the South African market, but if this is a field that you spend a lot of time on unpacking someone's behavior. Um, it is probably helpful. Do, yeah. do people expect this from a session? Because I had a client today that said to me, oh, this feels like therapy. Like, uh, this is not what I signed up for. And it was quite an interesting conversation to to talk about, you know, the process is therapeutic, but we're not attempting to be therap- therapists. <laughs> like, Yeah. So I've in, in some of my initial um, documents, I sent um, a coaching client, one of the, point in the document says that um, the coaching relationship is not a, a therapy relationship. I'm, I'm a coach, I'm not a therapist. I mean, it's just it's in the fine print there. Um, and yeah, after three or four sessions of working with the, with the young lady, she yeah, she had a bit of an emotional moment and she just said to me, I can, I can see why you said this isn't therapy because it, it can feel like it. It's so interlinked and interwoven e- emotions and money. And that sometimes we're talking about money, but we're also not talking about money. We're actually talking about your relationship with your mother. Um, and now your mother is in an unhappy relationship because she's financially dependent on a, on a significant other. And as a young lady, she maybe finds herself in a similar situation where um, she feels that she can't leave a relationship and she doesn't quite understand why. And... She's triggered by by her mother's experience and what she sees her mother going through, for example. Um, so, yeah, we, money can't and doesn't exist in isolation. So it's, it's sort of neatly wrapped with neat edges. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of overflow, but obviously that overflow needs to be contained as well because we all, yeah, once you stick within your, your area of expertise, um, yeah. So, Aaron, you are also, you know, you're 95, as you call it, a financial planner, financial advisor at Woodlands Wealth. How much of these tools flow into what you do, or is there more of a strict structure around the work that you're doing there? Yeah, so so the work that I do at Woodland, it's, yeah, obviously um, at Woodland, we have our, our own processes, ways of doing things, um, school of thinking around advice. But I mean the the skills and the experiences I brought up through working with with clients under the the wealth coach umbrella, so to speak, it's not like I can exactly leave it at the door. So yeah, there's there's definitely overflow, and I think um, yeah, other my colleagues find it annoying or they find it helpful. I think probably more helpful um, that I can I can actually share a lot a lot with them as well because um, in the clients that I deal with and they deal with, sometimes you just hear a bit of a moan of frustration from one of the other days and it's like, ah, oh, this client's doing this again. It's, it doesn't make sense. I don't understand why he's withdrawing this much again or I don't understand why this client wants to switch. We just spoke last week. That that type of thing. And a lot of it speaks to, to, to the human element and, and those manuscripts. Yeah, and I mean, you see that whether you're working with 25-year-olds earning 20,000 rand a month or you're speaking to a 60-year-old with accumulated massive wealth, it's the manuscripts and still human beings at the end of the day. 
It's not like when, as you accumulate more wealth, you kind of become less human and become more rational. Um, I think it might actually be the opposite. Um, I think as as people, where some people accumulate more, they become less less rational. So yeah, there's more things to worry about, right? There's more things going. There's more things at stake, and yes. I think maybe also that is why dealing with slightly older clients, slightly more complex, makes sense for a lot of advisors because the stakes are much higher. Like what yeah. you said earlier is that you have time and you have money and you have time to fix things. But for no, someone no, no. in their 70s, someone in their 80s, maybe they don't have the luxury of time. So no, no. how would you position this work with someone that's of a different generation, of someone that's maybe not used to talking about their feelings around money? Like in a, in a conversation where you can clearly see, hey, your manuscripts are derailing your financial plan, what would Aaron do? Like what are, what are the things that you look out for and what are the type of questions that you might pose to those clients? Yeah, you know, I listened to a podcast a few months ago. Yeah, most of the podcasts I, I listened to some about the, the human side of money and the, the, the whole theme was around the house of the helper. Um, and I that that took that a bit further um, in that the reason why a lot of financial planners are hesitant to speak about the softest stuff is because they haven't figured it out for themselves personally yet. So there there might be a perception that all financial planners' financial affairs are perfectly in order because you know it all. You do it for clients all day every day unless it's eight and and it's, it's, not the, it's not the reality. Um, I spoke to a legal professional a few weeks ago. Um, my husband's a legal professional as well, highly respected. They've got two children. They don't have a will. Um, can't make assumptions. So, yeah, it's sometimes we, we spend a lot of time on, on focusing on others and, and we, we can neglect ourselves. So I think uh, the conversation is to solve with financial planners themselves and they either need to go on that journey individually or they need to speak to someone. But I think as a, as a beginning point, to someone listen to this and but but they're preening. So I think as a beginning point, do the, do the manuscript questionnaire yourself and have a look at the results. Yeah, it's, it, it really gives you some better insight into yourself. And then once you're more comfortable looking at yourself in that context, then you might be more open to speaking to clients more um, about about the, the human side and what's actually driving the decision making. I mean, we um, portfolio metrics as a as a great financial personality um, assessment um, that that partially speaks to towards one's behavior and which is a good starting point. But but I do think that is only the starting point. One of my colleagues mentioned. You know, earlier today about um, just adding value to review discussions, especially if you've, your client has been with you for 17 or 15 years. Um, yeah, you can only go through the through the statement so many times every year, and then both of you are bored. What, what else do you talk about? And and this is the type of conversations one, one can have. Um, yeah, and it, it really does add value. And the client walks out of that review meeting not only knowing what the return was for the year, but maybe learning something more about themselves as well. And and then what's more valuable than that? Isn't that so true? I mean, I, I just read a book 
um, from strength to strength. And the summary of it was essentially that we should be spending more time on getting to know ourselves and our own strengths. And if we can facilitate that as financial planners, I'd be the first to acknowledge that my finances are far from perfect. And you don't have to have your finances perfect to be able to help someone else. Just like you have doctors that also get ill, <laughs> you know, you have financial planners that struggle with these same things. And I, and I think yep. we're still human, right? And acknowledging that and saying, as a human, I can show up and I can help guide you through this process. If I'm healthy, like you said, that health of the helper, what what are you seeing from financial planners? What What's the number one thing that they're struggling with at the moment? Sure. Um, and I think one one that comes to mind is probably something that, that will always be, be a struggle is what, what does the future look like um, in terms of clients, in terms of practice and, 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 and how it all fits together. Um, there's, there's more and more news and movement around uh, younger people immigrating, um, are people are people leaving? Are they leaving and not coming back? Are they coming back? Um, and and I really think that the concern really depends on on where practice is in its in its life, and and who that that practice services. But I think regardless of the the segment of the the market, so to speak, that you look after, um, the these these different challenges, and one that that will always be the regardless of. The segment you're in is is the noise that's out there. How much should people actually be listening to? Yeah, I, I think sometimes we wish we could put like noise cancelling headphones until they are the next meeting with us and they can take it off and listen to us. But but that's not the reality. Um, your clients are in all kinds of WhatsApp groups <laughs> and they're getting messages from their father-in-law to look out for this and look out for that. Um, clients are seeing banks in the U.S. folding. Um, there's there's a lot of noise, and um, it's it's difficult keeping clients focused on the controllables and what's actually relevant to them. Um, where's the rand going? Is interest rates out again? How long are they going to stay this high? Um, last conversations have been on the private. It keeps some people up at night, and and then that's not useful at all. Um, so yeah, easier said than done. But it, I, I think the biggest challenge is keeping clients focused on the things that actually matter and the things that's actually going to make a difference. Whether the rand goes to fourteen or twenty three or to whatever, um, how much of that can you control? Um, is your asset allocation in line with where you need to go? Will adjust we need be, but but stick the course. Simple as that. Aaron, <laughs> you have only. such a nice <laughs> way of simplifying and like saying, you know, the the almost blatantly obvious. And I I love it that you have a way of gently nudging people. Um, for people that want to learn a little bit more of the work that you do, where can they find you? What's the best way to connect with you? Uh, best way would would be LinkedIn. Um. Aaron Samuels, Aaron with one A, and then the Wealth Coach everywhere else on Instagram, the Wealth Coach, TikTok, the Wealth Coach is central. There's a there's a massive TikTok audience um, amongst our fellow financial planners. Um, beyond yeah, LinkedIn, Instagram, and and TikTok, as we all see me 
um, almost every day. And yeah, always happy to to chat and engage. And yeah, I'm a learner, so always looking looking for learning opportunities. Thank you so much for the content and the wisdom that you've brought today. All the best with uh, continuing this marathon because it it really is. Um, yep, we're just getting started. Hundred percent. Thank you so much. It's great chatting. <laughs>